Grace, mercy, and peace be to you from God, our Father, and from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Our text today's message comes from the Old Testament reading of Numbers, as you heard a few moments ago. You may be seated. Dear brothers and sisters in Christ, I understand that it's not easy sitting in these pews. So how about I get a few of you volunteers to come and get out of the pews and join me up here this morning. I am going to need 12 of you exactly. So if you're willing to be a volunteer, just make your way up here, please. Come and stand with me. Uh, If not, I'm going to make you come and help me. Uh, And it's going to be all of you good Lutherans who sat in the front. So make my life easier and come help. It is Father's Day after all. 12. I need 12. Okay, that's four. All right. All right. Five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve. Okay. Okay. All right. Okay. Uh, you're, you're never going to guess what, what's going to happen here. But we're going to divide you into two groups. All right. So we're going to have ten of you in one group and two in another. So why don't, uh, why don't, all of you guys go over here, right? You, you stay here. You're going to be the two. Oh. All right. Oh. Yeah, there's two of you. Yeah. Okay. All right. Okay. All right. So the first group over here, think about this. You are sitting in a meeting, right? You're at work. And if you wanted to hear a report from a group of people and 10 of them, spoke up first, and they all said the same thing. We'll call them the popular opinion. They spoke, and then the remaining two, two of them, say something contrary to the ten. We'll call them the unpopular opinion. Who are you more likely to believe? Are you likely to believe the majority? Show of hands. Who's going to believe the majority? Show of hands. Yeah? Okay, all right. Yeah, all right. Who of you are going to go with the minority, the unpopular opinion? Okay, all right. Thank you, guys. Why don't you give them a round of applause? You can make your way back to your seats. I imagine, whether you raise your hand or not, that most of us are probably going to side with the majority. Right? We're going to believe what the majority says. Why is it? Why is it that most of us would choose the majority? Because it seems obvious? Because those statistics are better? Because there's strength in numbers? Because if you think about a courtroom setting, you know, the eyewitness testimony of a large number of people saying the same thing is better than a small number of people saying the same thing? Because it's easier to not be the odd one out? What you heard in the reading for today was that there were 12 men who were sent to spy on the land of Canaan. The land that God had promised to give to the people of Israel. A land flowing with milk and honey. A land of plenty. Promised to them way back in Exodus chapter 3 when God called to Moses from the burning bush. 
Up until this point, God had done nothing but keep his promises to his people. He promised them that he would deliver them from the hands of the Egyptians, free them from slavery, and he did that. He promised to take them to the promised land, and he's done that. And so Moses sends out these 12 spies to see what the land looks like, whether or not the people living there are strong or weak, if there's many of them or a few of them, how fortified the places where their dwelling is, if the land is actually flowing with milk and honey, or if it's this desolate wilderness that they've been in for a while now, or if it's lush with plants and trees, and he wants them to bring back some some fruit as proof. These 12 spies are gone for 40 days, and they bring back word of all that they had seen, how lush and plentiful the land is, even bringing back some fruit of the land. But then 10 of the 12 spies bring a bad report about the land and the inhabitants of the land, because They're scared of the people that they see there. They're afraid that they cannot defeat them. Why? Because they're people of great height. Or as they go on to say, they are the Nephilim, right? Or giants. And these spies seem like grasshoppers to them. They look at the land and all of the abundance, but all they can see is the giants staring down at them and they're scared. And how do the people respond to the news from this majority? They go back to their old way of thinking. It would be better that we had stayed in the land of Egypt and die out there than here in the wilderness. This was the same thing that they had said when Pharaoh and his army were coming upon them at the Red Sea. It was the same thing that they had said when they had no food in the wilderness. And that's certainly what happened to them, right? Pharaoh and his army conquered them, and they all starved in the wilderness to death, right? No. And now, here they are. They're concerned for their wives and their children that they will become prey, that they will be put into slavery again, or that they will die. If that's the case, we might as well go back to Egypt. Now, in our reading, we haven't gotten yet to the story of David, but we will certainly learn something about facing giants when we do. Before we get there, though, we don't hear from David. We hear from Caleb and Joshua, the two who went against the other ten. The unpopular opinion. And Caleb and Joshua say, The land is an exceedingly good land. If the Lord delights in us, he will bring us into this land and give it to us, a land that flows with milk and honey. Only do not rebel against the Lord and do not fear the people of the land. Their protection is removed from them and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. They said to the people, Listen, God is with us. He is on our side. He promised us this land. And if he promised it to us, he is going to do it. And there is no reason to fear the people of the land. No reason to fear these giants. You think that they're going to devour us? But we're going to devour them. 
because God is with us. So do not rebel against him. It's like they're repeating Jesus' words to Thomas after the resurrection, even though this hasn't happened yet. But the words of, stop doubting and believe. How do the people react to the words of Caleb and Joshua? Well, they want to stone them for this report. And so God has to come, and he has to speak to Moses, calling out their unbelief, wanting to strike them down, wanting to take away their inheritance. But Moses intercedes for the people, as he often does. And he asks God not to strike them down, to forgive them of their sins, to forgive them of their unbelief, just like he's been doing since they left Egypt. This is just like what happened at Sinai with the golden calf. Have the Israelites learned anything? Not yet. God does forgive the sins of the people. But he says that none of them who disobeyed him, who didn't believe in him, who despised him, shall enter the promised land. The people rebel against God. They chose the fearful words of the ten over the words of the faithful two, who pointed them to what God had already done for them. They chose not to listen to the sound words of a small group, but instead to listen to the majority. God forgives them, but that doesn't mean there are no consequences. That doesn't mean that there isn't punishment. Or as God had already warned of their disobedience in Leviticus, that he would discipline them. And that means that they're not going to enter into the promised land. And what it really means is that they're going to get exactly what they keep complaining about. They're going to die in the wilderness. All of them who are 20 years and older, who have rebelled and complained against God, they are as good as dead. In fact, God calls them dead bodies. They are dead men walking. The only ones in that age range who will make it to the promised land are Caleb and Joshua, those faithful spies. And God says, those little ones that you are so concerned with that they're going to become prey, I will bring them into the promised land. They will not die. They will live to see the land that your dead bodies rejected with your unbelief. God doesn't kill all of them right then and there, though. Instead, they're going to wander. They're going to suffer in the wilderness, in the desert, because of their faithlessness. Until the last of those people, those dead bodies that went against God, until they die off in the wilderness, never seen the promised land, only then will they enter. The children will inherit the promised land, but the faithless shall never see it. They will wander for 40 years in the desert, which coincides with the 40 days that the spies had checked out the promised land. They wander one year 
for every day. And maybe one of the reasons why the punishment is so severe this time around compared to the other acts of rebellion that we've seen them do is that the whole company of the people, the whole congregation, rebelled against God. If you remember at Sinai with the golden calf, Moses comes down and he separated those who were faithful to God from those who were not. Those faithful were the Levites. This time around, now, they're all guilty. Except, it seems, Moses, Aaron, Caleb, and Joshua. And those ten spies that were faithless, who we could say led others into temptation because they were responsible for stirring up the people in unbelief and rebellion against God, those ten died. There are consequences for our actions. There are punishments for our sins, for our faithlessness. Or as Moses describes it, there is discipline for not following the commands of God. Just like a man, a father, disciplines his children. As we celebrate Father's Day, sometimes, not always, sometimes we view fathers as the ones who bring the discipline, bring the punishment. They're usually the ones who create the, the fear in the lives of their children so that they keep them in line and keep the commands. But just like fathers today, and just like God in the book of Numbers, children don't always listen. They rebel, and then the discipline comes. God disciplines his people, and sometimes it means telling them things they don't want to hear. Like, you're being not very smart. We're trying not to say the word stupid in our house, just so you know. All right. Just like parents discipline their children, sometimes it means telling them things they don't want to hear, like, you're being not very smart. And sometimes the church has to speak out to sin and has to talk to sinners, which is all of us, and say things that we don't want to hear, like, you're being not very smart. Is it unloving to tell someone that they're being not very smart? when they are, in fact, not being very smart? God's Word tells us that God disciplines us because He loves us, and that He disciplines us so that we will not be condemned with the rest of the world. So listen, when you are not being very smart, and you continue to not be very smart, it's not going to end well for you. These words are certainly true for us today. I understand it's not easy sitting in these pews. In a world that continues to pressure the church to get in line. In a world that promotes all things, promotes all sins, as we'll call them, as being acceptable. In a world that continues to get farther and farther and farther away from the word of God. 
Are we going to be one of the ten? Or one of the two? Are we going to be one of the ten that sees the world and is scared to go against it? Scared to fight because they seem so big and bad and strong and we are not? In a world that the church, that says that the church is not being very smart because, well, this word of God, it's, it's not actually the word of God. Did you know that? It's, it's just the word of man because it was written by men. Men who are sexist and homophobic and, and racist and hateful. And this book is super outdated because its words are sexist and homophobic and racist and hateful. And in these moments, we're faced with the question of, do we change the word of God? Or does the word of God change us? Do we cut the pieces out of the word of God that, that we don't like to hear? Do we cut out the pieces of the word of God that the world doesn't like to hear? Or do we take God's word as whole? And we let the word interpret the word. We let scripture interpret other parts of scripture. We let the word of God help us understand parts that we don't understand. Even parts that are tough to hear. Do we let the Holy Spirit lead us and guide us in our life, in our way of living? Or do we let the devil, the world, and our sinful flesh I'll tell you this. One of those options will make your earthly life a whole lot easier. Maybe seemingly better even. The other option will make your eternal life a whole lot more secure. One of those options will satisfy your earthly life for a short time. The other option will make your earthly life a whole lot more difficult. Because it is much harder to be one of the two than one of the ten. Especially when you're standing and talking in front of the boss. And if we do go against the world, we will be hated. Because we will be seen as hateful for our beliefs. We will be persecuted because we will be seen as persecuting others who live differently than us. We will be canceled because we want to cancel sin and warn of the consequences of those sins, which is condemnation. Don't think that because this, for some of you, your generation is enlightened or woke, that you actually know better than God. I'm sure that every generation has felt that they know better than God. Do you know what happened to all those generations? They all passed away. Do you know who has remained? God. Because he is the beginning and he is the end. He is eternal. And God's laws and rules and commands are not unloving when he wants the best for his people, when he wants them to have the best life possible, which 
isn't all about this earthly life. Do you want to be like Caleb and Joshua who get to enter the promised land? Or do you want to be one of the ten that no one remembers and in the end dies because of your unbelief, never to enter the promised land? It is not hateful to call people out on sin. What would be wise for us as Christians to do, though, however, is to be honest about our own sin. So, hey, everyone. I would just like to let you know that I am a poor, miserable, sinful human being. And I have sinned against God every single day in my thoughts, in my words, and in my actions. And for that, I am condemned to hell. And I need forgiveness. And I need Jesus. That's who I am. The Israelites, who sinned, who rebelled, who were faithless, they died. They did not enter the promised land. The world that sins, that rebels against God, that is faithless, that is unbelieving towards him, will die. They will not enter the promised land of heaven. This is what we all deserve because we are all sinners. We are all a part of the world. Because we all rebel against God at times. We are faithless and unbelieving in our sin. We are no different than others. We are no different than the rest of the world because we are sinners. So when we address sinners, when we address the sin of others, we don't do it so that everyone else can see it. We do it with gentleness and respect and care out of love for them, acknowledging first our own sin because we have been restored, we have been forgiven by God who wants the same for all people. Because if you see someone going down the road of unbelief that leads to death, that leads to hell, it is not hateful to try and steer them in another direction, to make them do a U-turn. It is hateful to see someone on the road of unbelief and just say, have a nice life. I hope it's not too hot where you're going. See you in hell. Oh, just kidding. I won't be there because I believe. That's like standing at the entrance to hell and opening the door for them. Here you go. That is hateful. You know who does stand at the door to hell? Jesus. And rather than opening it for people to enter, he stepped in it, in our place, so that we wouldn't go there. We deserve discipline. We deserve punishment. We deserve condemnation. We deserve not to enter the promised land of heaven. We deserve to enter through the gates of hell for all eternity. Because left on our own, left in our sin, 
that's the direction that all of us are going to drive ourselves in. The road of sin, of death, of unbelief, of hell. But that is not what God wants for us because he loves us. And in our faithlessness, he is faithful. He keeps his promises as he's always done. And so Jesus, he takes the wheel, and he kicks us out of the car, and he takes the road of punishment, of condemnation, and hell for us, because he is the only one who can. God led the people to the promised land, even though they didn't deserve it. He leads us to heaven, even though we don't deserve it. And he keeps us on the road to eternal life by sending his Savior, Jesus Christ, to rescue us from sin and death and the devil. And God keeps his promises, and so Jesus dies on the cross for us. And he was put to death because the world did not want to hear his message. The world was opposed to him. The world rebelled against his teachings. And rather than hearing his words, they shut him up. At least they thought. By nailing him to the cross. But that's not where it ends. Death does not have the last word. Jesus does. And on the third day he rose, defeating sin, death, and the devil, overcoming the world, overcoming our sinful flesh, and overcoming hell itself. And he did it so that by faith in him, through the power of the Holy Spirit who gives us faith, we could enter into the promised land of heaven. And it's his word, it's his spirit, it's his sacraments, those means of his grace that will guide our ways and keep us on the road that leads to life. The road that leads to him. God grant this to us all. Amen. Now the peace of God which passes all understanding. Guard your hearts and minds in Jesus Christ our Lord and our Savior. Amen.